Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm your host, CEO Dan Mariashen. Thank you for spending some time with us today. I'm pleased to have as my guest today, Sarah Feinberg, Visiting Professor of Israeli Affairs at Georgetown University's Center for Jewish Civilization and lecturer at Tel Aviv University's Diplomacy and Security Studies Program. Dr. Feinberg is an expert on Russia and on anti-Semitism. She previously served as a research fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv. She's also the co-author of Secularism on the Edge, Rethinking Church-State Relations in the United States, France, and Israel. I'll be speaking with Dr. Feinberg today about the state of anti-Semitism in Europe and Russian policy in the Middle East and how COVID-19 may have affected it. Welcome to the program, Sarah. Thank you. Good morning, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we uh, begin on the issues themselves, you have a very interesting family history. Uh, you were born in the Soviet Union. Uh, your father was a dissident. He was in prison for a number of years. Family made its way to France. Tell us about that story and, and how that experience has informed your career and your worldview. Mm -hmm. Uh, in fact, I was born in France and of a couple of 1968. My dad was imprisoned five years in a psychiatric prison in Leningrad and in Moscow because he was one of the seven demonstrators on the Red Square on August 25th, 1968. You remember at that time, this demonstration was maybe the climax of the dissident movement, and in particular, of the struggle to free Czechoslovakia from the sudden invasion by the Soviet Union and the Warsaw, uh, the Warsaw Pact allies. My mom was a, a young French uh, journalist, activist in France on behalf of dissidents. And I was born out of the interview when my dad was released he was first sent to Israel and then to London, and this is the way uh, they met. Uh, I was born uh, just four years after his release from one of the most horrific, violent, and crushing uh, uh, oppressive environments in the Soviet uh, Union, which were the psychiatric hospitals. These were institutions where perfectly uh, sane people were sent to, not because of their disease, not because of their symptoms, but because of their opinions. And my dad uh, carried out one of the longest hunger strikes in the Soviet Union, two months and two days. And uh, he was released um, as a, out of a miracle one of the psychiatrists in the prison, Kapitan Lev Nikolaevich Petrov, and a major officer of the Ministry of Internal Affairs, the psychiatric prisons were um, managed by the KGB and the Ministry of Internal Affairs, decided, decided to free my father. And in this small uh, and extremely violent environment, he took the risk to bring to um, 
foreign correspondence in Moscow, my father's declaration of hunger strike, and the KGB could not understand why in the morning of March 1972, a man by the name of Victor Feinberg was declaring a hunger strike in the solitude of his cell, and that in the same day, it was published in Voice of America, in the BBC, everywhere in the world. The memory of this righteous, I call him a righteous among the nation, um, wasn't, um, uh, nobody paid a tribute to his memory. He died before the fall of the Soviet Union, and my father couldn't reveal this story in fear of endangering his life. And in fact, uh, a month ago, I did a lecture before the, you know, the coronavirus situation about him. And I was contacted by the mayor of uh, Ranana to have one of the streets of Israel named after Kapitan Petrov. So this wow. is the story. <laughs> wow. Wow. Now, now you could have gone into any other field, but you went into the field that you did, which is Russian studies um, and strategic studies. Um, so did, did this story of your father, did this uh, really have that kind of impact on you, that this is what you were going to do, or you decided later on to do this? You know what, Daniel? Uh, you, are, uh, you were an activist for the Soviet Jewelry Movement, and what really informed or formed my worldview as a kid and as a teenager growing up in France was this um, articulation, marriage, between a very, very strong commitment to Israel. You know, the, the Soviet dissident movement uh, was a movement very, very close to Israel and to re the refusenik movement. I will not, you know it better than I do. And on the other hand, and in a way that is uh, uh, completely, uh, uh, that it, you, you shouldn't separate, inseparable, the human rights concern. And this is my worldview. I came to Israel and I came to the field of Israel National Security Study and on you know, Russia's policy in the Middle East with those two axioms in my mind. First of all, a commitment to a strong, thriving Israel, and a commitment to the same values that were defended by the human rights movement in the Soviet Union, and in which you had an overwhelming overrepresentation of Jews. And I have to admit, Daniel, that since I made Aliyah eight years ago, I'm still looking for political parties, political figures who will embody this kind of, uh, uh, this union, you know, this ideological union articulation between the two. And in whatever I do in Israel, as a policy advisor, as a researcher, as a lecturer, my horizon is this horizon, which was the ideological horizon of the Soviet dissident movement. I was also greatly shaped in my uh, worldview by my own experience growing as a teenager and as a student in France. I was a student during the Second Intifada. I saw firsthand the sweeping rise 
of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, uh, I saw the ways in which uh, the liberalism and the liberal parties in France became anti-Semitic movements in their core, in their tropes, in their vocabulary. So this is this mixture of experiences from the Soviet Jewish uh, environment and the French Jewish experience that shaped um, my, my that inform, has informed my work and uh, uh, my uh, uh, desire uh, to contribute to the state of Israel. Well, let's use what you've just said as a point of departure on the question of anti-Semitism in Europe. France, of course, has been really a focus uh, because of the, the uh, violent uh, terrorist uh, incidents um, many, many incidents of anti-Semitism, but it's, of course, not just in France. I mean, it is throughout Europe, from the left, from the right, uh, from Islamic extremists. Um, give us your take on the situation now and what you see going forward. Look, I, I just want to address the latest developments, okay, in the past two months under the COVID-19 crisis. What I see what I observed from Israel was a toxic uh, mixture between two phenomena. The first phenomenon was the return of uh, the poisoning the wells trope of the Middle Ages. And what I mean, I'm sure you have followed this also, Daniel. You know that the health minister, Agnès Buzyn, is the son, is the daughter, I'm sorry, of a Holocaust, a couple of Holocaust survivors. The health minister in France. It, yes, she just stepped out as right. a health minister. The director general of the health ministry, Jérôme Salomon, is also the son of Holocaust survivors. The health minister, Agnès Buzyn, was also the daughter-in-law of Simone Veil, of the famous Holocaust survivor that has shaped French and European politics. And as I'm looking at the ways in which she's been treated in the press, I'm not talking about uh, extremist, Islamist, far-right uh, Facebook po posts. I'm talking about regular journalists. What I'm seeing, Dan, for the first time is a full normalization, mainstreamization of anti-Semitic tropes. And you know, in the 2000s, anti-Semitism belonged mainly to the far left and to the far right, and to the mixture, to the juncture. You know, we've seen it with Dieudonné and Soral. Now there is a mainstreamization. It is uh, suggested, it is insinuated uh, in the mainstream discourse. Why? because we're not talking about Israel. We're not talking about the Palestinian issue. We're not talking about issues that are external to France. We're talking about a national health emergency. The second element, uh, I've just mentioned the poisoning the wealth trope, is um, the overrepresentation of Jews in the number of victims of COVID-19. You know that France's Jews represent nearly 0.75% of the entire French Jewish population. 
and they do represent now more than 5% of the casualties and the deaths of the COVID-19. You know, um, it started, uh, um, you can explain it by various factors. First of all, the overwhelming majority of Jews do live in Paris, and Paris was the epicenter of the epidemic. Also, there was a major wave of contagion during Purim, the Purim holiday, like in New York City. So there was this feeling in France that Jews were the super spreaders at the beginning of the COVID-19 um, disease throughout France. So you put those two elements together, the uh, establishment that has been long associated with the Jews. You remember when Macron was elected, because he worked for Rothschild, he was perceived as a Jewish, um, uh, as um, a puppet of the Jewish establishment. And on the other hand, the Jews are super spreaders. It creates a very, very toxic anti-Semitic atmosphere. And again, that doesn't uh, pop up in the margins, but in the mainstream uh, discourse. So you ask me what I, how I see things develop. I think we need to take a long-term historical perspective. When we talk about French Jewry, and I worked on this issue with Professor Yossi Shein, whom you interview in this, uh, uh, you interviewed in this podcast, you see that since the 1950s and 60s, you have a decline of this community. Maybe demographically speaking, uh, it's been bolstered by the uh, immigration of North African Jews, but in terms of its intellectual production, in terms of its ability to renew itself, in terms of its connection to the French Republican dream or the French Republican vision, it is hard to see how French Jewry will be able to uh, sustain itself as a model. And I think the COVID-19 crisis uh, may precipitate its downfall. First, because of the financial crisis, the Jews are going to be economically affected. Second, because of the lack of social and political uh, mobilization uh, capacity. And third, because of this uh, rise of anti-Semitism, uh, not in the margins, as I said, but as a, a mainstream, uh, mainstream trope that is being that we're seeing spread in the French media and in the French political discourse. Uh, I don't think that uh, French Jews will necessarily uh, do Aliyah en masse to Israel. We don't have the right numbers for the Jews. As you know, we don't know how many Jews do leave France for Canada, for example, for Montreal or for other cities. But I do think that we're gonna see what the French uh, sociologist Danny Trump uh, um, coined as France without Jews. La France sans les Juifs. France without Jews. And I think that after the case of Agnès Buzyn, the health minister, being publicly uh, demonized as the main person responsible for the COVID-19 crisis in France, I think it's going to be 
it'd be extremely difficult for politicians of Jewish origins to come back to political life. So let's move to uh, Russia. Just uh, uh, before we get into some of the strategic issues, uh, let's talk about COVID-19 in Russia. Um, it has um, hit <clears throat> Russia hard um, in the beginning, wasn't clear. Now it's becoming much clearer. Um, has uh, COVID impacted in any way um, uh, Russia's uh, foreign policy uh, activity? Um, first of all, uh, regarding the numbers, Russia now is the third largest country in terms of COVID-19 victims. You have over 470,000 people who contracted the virus, over 6,000 deaths. And of course, those numbers are underestimated because it's Russia and because no country has accurate numbers of the number of victims. Second, it's important to uh, underline the fact that the Russian establishment was badly affected, including the prime minister, the spokesperson of Putin, including the president of the Chechen Republic, uh, um, Kadyrov, who holds the key of the Caucasus, who is a person very active in Syria. He's been hospitalized including the chief rabbi of Russia, Ber Lazar, who has, done this, who has done been hospitalized. So we're seeing that Russia has been hard uh, quantitatively, quantitatively, but also qualitatively in terms of the people being affected. We've seen in terms of its foreign policy that Russia, as other countries, as Iran, as North Korea, as Venezuela, has tried to leverage the crisis to put an end to the American and European economic sanctions. Russia, since the summer of 2014, is obsessed by the lifting of economic sanctions that have hardly hit its economy um, as a whole. So this is the first move. This move did not succeed. The second move that we've seen is an attempt by Russia to use and leverage this crisis as a way of rapprochement with the Trump's administration. There's been a lot of dialogue surrounding two main issues. The first one is the exchange of medical aid and support and collaboration surrounding the COVID-19 crisis. And the second one is uh, surrounding um, the OPEC crisis, the oil production crisis. You know that the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Russia uh, ended up with a new deal on April the 12th of significantly cutting the oil production of the 23 OPEC countries. For Russia and Saudi Arabia in particular, these cuts are very, very hard, uh, from one, uh, 11 million uh, barrels a day to 8.5 million barrels a day. For Russia, it's a major, major economic blow. And Russia used this crisis uh, to leverage some kind of rapprochement with the United States, also leveraging the crisis between the United States and China. 
using this crisis also to foster some kind of rapprochement. The third um, area of um, uh, Russian uh, increased involvement was humanitarian aid across Europe. In Italy, in particular, you know that Italy is by far the most pro-Russian European Western country in terms of uh, collaboration at the strategic level, defense-wise, economic-wise. So Russia sent, um, Russia conducted a humanitarian assistance policy vis-a-vis -vis Italy, vis-a-vis -vis Serbia also, which is a very important uh, uh, Russian ally in the heart of Europe. So Russia has conducted this humanitarian outreach, of course, to squeeze in some additional political or economic dividends uh, across Europe and the European Union. The last area is the Middle East. We haven't seen a decrease of Russian activity. We have seen a significant increase of Russian activity, in particular, Daniel, in Syria and in Libya. In Syria, uh, Russia, for example, named a new special envoy, uh, as a matter of fact, her ambassador in Baghdad, in, in Syria, uh, in Damascus, as the new Russian envoy to Syria. You know, up to now, we, Russia had two envoys in Syria. One of them was the special envoy Lavrentiev, and the second one is the special Russian envoy in the, in the Middle East, Mikhail Bogdanov. So what is the significance of sending a third envoy to Syria? Uh, the first significance is balancing between Russia's military involvement and Russia's diplomatic achievements in Syria. We are in a critical stage when Russia needs to convert its military uh, dividends and gains into diplomatic victory. It's not, uh, you know, um, uh, it's not um, uh, guaranteed at the moment, especially given the fact that you have other actors that are very active in Syria for the moment, not only uh, Turkey, but also the United Arab Emir Emirates. So Russia uh, has conducted a very intense diplomatic activity in Syria in order to make sure that it will continue to uh, uh, maneuver the political and diplomatic situation in Syria. On the military front, Russia is opening a third base now in the last days in the northeast part of Syria, at the border with the Kurdish re region of Iraq, you know, after her air base in, in Khmimim and her naval base in Tartus. So now Russia is opening a third military base in order to better entrench its military presence. Russia has been extremely active in Libya, uh, supporting the Haftar's uh, regime, Russia uh, has uh, collaborated also with Turkey on the COVID-19 issue. And last but not least, 
Russia has reactivated its activity on the Palestinian front in the wake of the announced annexation of uh, the Jordan uh, Valley uh, as early as uh, July 1st in Israel. So this is, you, you could have expected a decrease of activity. And on the other hand, we've seen the opposite of a major increase of activity across the Middle East and North Africa. Well, there's another player in Syria, and that's Iran. Um, and the cooperation to preserve the regime of Bashar Assad was uh, Russians, Iranians, and their proxies. Um, what is the state of, of the relations between Russia and Iran on the future of Syria? So regarding Russia's position, Russia uh, sees Iran as a very useful ally militarily. You know, the, uh, if there is um, a country that paid the, the price of blood of the Syrian war, this was Iran and the Shiite militias. On the other hand, Russia is not interested to have Syria transformed into a new Hezbollah. Russia is not interested in having Iran having the upper hand in Damascus over the regime of Bashar al-Assad. Russia wants a balanced Syria and a Syria in which it will be able to maintain its economic presence, its diplomatic presence, its military presence. And in order to do so, Russia needs to maintain this fine balance between a military Iranian presence that will continue to ensure the stability of the Assad regime on the front, on the front with Syria, with Israel, with Lebanon and Iraq. And on the other hand, it wants to make sure to uh, uh, maintain its domination and its influence on the Syrian army of Bashar al-Assad and on the Syrian regime as a whole. That is why you have observed uh, a kind of schizophrenic policy of Moscow, speaking Farsi with Iran and speaking Hebrew with Tel Aviv or Jerusalem in order to maintain that kind, this very fine balance uh, uh, of uh, a useful but contained military Iranian presence on the Syrian front lines. Let's talk about that, uh, Russian-Israeli relations. Vladimir Putin was in Israel a few months ago. Comment on that. Uh, so Vladimir Putin was in Israel uh, a few months ago um, to uh, commemorate uh, the anniversary of the Holocaust. It was one of the major events um, of Holocaust memory in Israel. Uh, I have two comments on this. First of all, uh, Russia and Vladimir Putin in particular uh, have uh, a genuine interest today in the preservation of Holocaust memory. 
And I have to say that from this point of view, whereas Israel is finding itself in a deep crisis with Poland, in a complicated conversation with the Baltic states, uh, in um, Situation in, in Ukraine, for example, in Ukraine? Uh, uh, in Ukraine, the situation became different under the presidency of Zelensky and of Poroshenko before. But whereas Israel is finding difficult to speak about the Holocaust with many Eastern European powers, you see in Russia an ally to preserve on the international stage the memory of the Holocaust. Likewise, Russia uh, sees in this dialogue with Israel and in the promotion of Holocaust memory in Israel and via Israel, a way to bolster the legitimacy of its main World War II narrative. You know that the Russian regime today is primarily based on the memory of World War II not on the memory of the Soviet Union, not on the memory of Stalinism, not on the memory of Tsarist Russia, but on the victorious uh, imagery of, the, of World War II. And here Israel acts as a whitener of Russia's ideology. If the state of Israel, a Western democracy, does endorse the Russian narrative, it means that this narrative should be acceptable to the entire world. So you have this kind of uh, exchange or uh, dialogue between the two countries based on that premise. On the one hand, Israel sees a partner in Russia for the preservation of the Holocaust memory worldwide which now is being eroded in many European capitals. And on the other hand, you see Russia leveraging Israel as a provider of legitimacy to its nationalist, uh, militaristic narrative. I will add to this that the memory issue has been used by both parties as a sideline dialogue to help maintain other extremely sensitive, extremely circumvallated, extremely explosive issues between the two countries in the last years, and especially since Russia entered the Syrian uh, front lines. You know, for the first time, uh, Israeli soldiers at the Kiriya had to deal with Russian uh, soldiers or Russian private military contractors in Syria. It wasn't an easy situation. It was a situation marked by crisis, by ruptures. So the dialogue surrounding the Holocaust was always hampering, softening the Russian-Israeli dialogue in times of crisis. So there was a uh, instrumental dimension to it also in the last years. <clears throat> Sarah, do you think that, um, the, is it, you talk about Holocaust and memory, but this large um, Russian Jewish population in Israel over the years, over a million people who came in really a relatively short period of time, um, you know, I think back uh, to Russia in the Middle East in the 1960s uh, in Egypt, 
and in Syria. And I think of that of that era, and now we're we're in a different era, but the Russians are back. In in between, you had this uh, in migration of of so many Russian Jews. Has that had an impact on 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 Putin um, as a as a factor of 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 a a connection that that eases that relationship, as you said, kind of putting aside perhaps some other more explosive issues, but is that also part of the dynamic? Absolutely. Uh, Russian Jews, by the way, most of them do not come from Russia. They come from the Ukraine, Belarus, the Baltic states, you know better than me, Kazakhstan, uh, the Russian ones are a minority, have been leveraged by President Putin within his grand design of reviving Ruskimir, the Russian world. This is part of his classical diaspora politics that he's been conducted, uh, conducting in Ukraine, in Kazakhstan, in the Baltic states, also in Germany and the United States. So yes, Russian Jewry in Israel is part of this grand design and they are uh, coined as Russians, as part of this Russian world by Putin himself. Second, uh, due to his personal history, Putin has a genuine concern and care for Russian Jewry. You know, you can put a psychologist in the room, you can put a historian in the room, but the fact is that Putin grew up in, uh, next to a family of Orthodox Jews in Leningrad. And Putin grew up with major Jewish figures who uh, became compagnon on arm of Putin himself during his political trajectory. So Putin has a genuine concern for Russian Jews for their safety and security. And I do remember that during periods of major crises, such as uh, the 2014 operation in Gaza, you know, Russia wanted to make sure that uh, the Israeli civilian population would be protected out of concern for uh, also this, out of solidarity for those Rus Russian Jews. Now you have a reverse question. What was the impact of those Russian Jews on Israeli politics and on Israel's relations with Russia? You know that part of the Israeli establishment, whether political or security or military, comes from this world, comes from uh, they do speak Russian, they do think in Russian. Israeli soldiers at the Kiriya dialogued in Ru Russian with their Russian uh, you know, counterparts in Damascus or in Khmimim. So there is this kind of affinity they share the same Weltanschauung, if you would, if you would like to uh, use that, that expression. And I think that really helped in this uh, in the Russian-Israeli bilateral relations. You know, if you look at the Russian-Israeli relations from a regional perspective, these are very complicated and uh, balancing and explosive relations. If you look at them from a bilateral perspective, cultural perspective, scientific perspective, technological perspective, these are excellent relations. So this is the kind of tango 
that Russia and Israel are dancing together. And this tango uh, has some kind of Russian Jewish music of this history that helps that dance going on as well in the background. Sarah, we've got just a little time left, but and we didn't really cover Ukraine uh, at any length. Uh, but uh, what's your prognosis now for the situation in, uh, in eastern Ukraine going forward? So uh, we, one year after uh, Zelensky became the president, uh, we've had very, very little progress on the eastern uh, Ukrainian front. Uh, the two major progress were, one, uh, uh, the president managed to revive the Normandy format. The negotiations stopped for three years and he was able to reactivate the negotiations between Russia, Ukraine, France, and Germany. And second, he was able to strike a major uh, prisoners exchange. This being said, now the situation is completely frozen and we have two new elements in mind, to keep in mind. First of all, this war is extremely costly for Russia, economically speaking. And now that we have the COVID crisis going on, you have some voices in Moscow, in the establishment, that are questioning the raison d'etre of Russia's systematic um, aid, including economic aid to Eastern Ukraine. Second, you have the COVID crisis uh, going on in Eastern Ukraine. You've had uh, people who were affected by the virus. We don't know how many people were affected the eastern part of Ukraine was completely separated from the western part because of this crisis. So all of these elements uh, tend uh, to um, point to a direction of complete freeze of the, of the conflict as we've seen in Georgia and Abkhazia and in other frozen conflicts across the Eurasian space. Well, Sarah, thank you very much for, uh, for joining us. I hope you'll come back. We've really just touched the surface on so many of these issues. Thank you to Sarah Feinberg for joining me today, and thank you for tuning in. If you like what you've heard so far, make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, benebrith.org, to learn about our work, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. For my guest, Sarah Feinberg, I'm your host, Dan Mary Asher. We'll talk to you next time on the B'nai B'rith International Podcast.